ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. The Goldman Sachs future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show this week. Joining me will be Dave Plecka, Global Head of Fixed Income at Dimensional Fund Advisors, DFA, who after launching their first ETF in November 2020, they're already nearing $45 billion in ETF assets. And actually, they are the top ETF issuer in terms of actively managed ETFs. It's just amazing. But Dave's going to focus on DFA's fixed income ETFs, which I'll give you one more stat here. So there are four DFA bond ETFs. Those four ETFs crossed over a billion dollars in assets in just two months of trading. They're, they're ramping up quickly. And so we're going to dive into DFA's fixed income approach and what they view as some of the differentiators with these ETFs. I'm also going to have Dave offer some thoughts on the markets right now. Obviously, we had the uh, Fed meeting last week. I think some view Jerome Powell's comments as a bit more hawkish than expected, and there are concerns interest rates could rise faster. Of course, inflation is running at 40-year highs. Those things make fixed income much more challenging right now. So I'll discuss all of that with Dave. Also joining me this week will be Matt Middleton, who is CEO of Advisor Circle and Josh Brown, CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. They're going to give us a sneak preview of what's being billed as the wealth management event of the year. It's called Future Proof. It's being held this September in Huntington Beach, California. I'll definitely be there. Uh, really excited about this. But I'll, I'll tell you, even if you have no interest in attending this conference or you just can't be down there for whatever reason, you're going to want to hear these guys talk. They know the advisor and investment landscape as well as anyone, and we are going to get into some topics outside of just the uh, conference, so that should be a fun conversation. Now, to start this week, I have the one and only Laura Krieger on the line with me. Laura is managing editor of ETF Trends. I have a grab bag of ETF topics for us to get to, so let's do that now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, great having you back on the podcast. I feel like it's been a little while. It has been. A lot has happened. It's been an entire century for these past few weeks. Yeah, and I feel like it's been like that over the past uh, couple of years, right? It's like every year is a decade <laughs> and in real time. Exactly. So look, I have exactly. a, uh, a grab bag of ETF topics for us this week. And I, I thought I'd actually start with ARK Invest, just real quick. I know some people are fatigued on this topic, but I do think it's such an interesting story, both in good times and bad. And I pulled some updated numbers yesterday. I had gone through these a couple of weeks ago with Tom Lydon, but these numbers, there's already been some meaningful changes. So let me give these mm -hmm. to you. ARKK, the ARK Innovation ETF, that's now down over 50% from its February 2021 peak. And that's after a big bounce yesterday. ARKG and ARKW, their next two most popular ETFs, those are down around 50% as well. And then if you look at ARK assets overall, those have gone from over $60 billion last February to now around $22 billion. I mean, chopped by two-thirds in less than a year. Where is your head on, on, on ARK and Kathy Wood right now? Are you surprised by anything? Are, are you just fatigued with this story? What, what, what's your take right now? <laughs> well, I think when it comes to ARK, emotions run hot. Uh, you know, as hot as the hot takes that inevitably start to to flood out. I mean, look, ARC did decline a lot in 2021. Uh, as you pointed out, ARCKK uh, dropped more than 50 percent. But come on, the ARC funds, they were running so hot for so long, they were bound to come back to earth at some point. And, you know, Extremely grossy stocks like the ones that are in those ARC products, they've been challenged for 12 odd months. And that's not just limited to the names that Kathy Wood picks, but it's a challenging environment for, for growth that's going to remain in place as rates begin to rise because, you know, history shows us that's not necessarily the, um, the greatest environment for growth stocks to do well in. And that's going to impact ARC, yes, but it's also going to spell trouble for pretty much any disruptive or uh, disruptive tech or, or highly specialized tech fund that is relying on these grossier names. I mean, if you look at them, it's bloodbath right now, even outside the ARC suite, and it has been for months. But because, you know, ARC is ARC, everybody is kind of salivating for, for the fund uh, for the fall. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I think if you dig into the flows, if you look at precisely which funds are losing money and, and, and what kind of separates them apart, a lot of these outflows are clearly linked to, uh, you know, what's the opposite of performance chasing? Is it like performance running away? Um, <laughs> because the funds that have dropped the most performance-wise, they've also shed the most assets, which means that, you know, when they start outperforming again, we can probably expect that they're going to pull those assets back in. And another element to it, too, is that um, the higher-profile funds like ARKK, ARKK gets all the headlines, right? You tend to see that fund get the biggest whipsaw in flows, up and down and up and down. 
But then you look at some of the lesser known ETFs, the smaller ETFs, uh, you know, CTRU or ARK, ARKG, which you mentioned earlier, and the outflows are a lot more modest. And in fact, both of those products are positive uh, year to date, slightly positive for the year. And they're still built on that signature ARK uh, methodology, that, that signature ARK approach to disruptive innovation. So um, there's definitely a headline effect that's in place here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just think that sometimes – did you ever see that movie Mean Girls? I uh, did. With, I have two daughters. Yeah, there's, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a line in it that uh, uh, the, the big villain, Regina George, says, why are you so obsessed with me? It kind of feels like ARC could say that <laughs> about, about the investment industry. Just we're obsessed with watching what Kathy Wood does and what that firm does, but – you know, I I I just I think that they're not alone in what's happening in the growth space, and uh, we maybe ignore that at our peril. I love that analogy, and you know the fact is, Arc had such a successful run in 2020. Media loves seeing those success stories, and then once somebody is mm-hmm. a success, the media loves tearing them back down. But you know, I'll exactly. simplify. I thought your analysis was was on point. I'll just add something very simple, and I've said this before. If you have ETFs that can go up 100, 150% in one year, well, guess what? They can also go down 50% or more in a given year. That's really not a big surprise. That's what you are getting with a fund like that. And to to me, more than anything else, that's that's what's been lost here. Kathy Wood is trying to get exposure to these, uh, you know, high beta, high growth stocks. That's the goal of the strategy. Let (laughs) let, let me ask you this. You know, one of the other stories around uh, ARC and Kathy Wood right now, is this uh, Tuttle Capital Short Innovation ETF, ticker SARK, S-A-R-K. So this offers inverse exposure to ARKK. I saw uh, Bloomberg had a, a, a huge piece highlighting this last week. CNBC's Jim Cramer was actually pumping this thing last week. Not great timing, but <laughs> what, what, what do you think of the success of SARK in its first three months of existence? I mean, it's already up, what, 45 50% and has over $300 million in assets. I, You know, I... I will say this. I'm not entirely surprised that Sark uh, got approved and came to market. It's not the first time that we've seen products that uh, take an inverse, excuse me, an inverse or, or leveraged approach um, to existing products, right? We see that kind of all the time uh, with indexed ETFs. Direction and um, ProShares uh, have basically built their businesses on that. Um, and we've also seen copycat ETFs try to mimic what's going on in, in hedge fund land uh, by combing through 13F filings and uh, replicating the holdings from, from those, uh, whatever the big hedge funds are holding. Um, but this is the first time we've seen something like this in real time, you know, at a, a product that's trying to copycat an active fund in real time. And, you know, I think it comes back to that obsession that the media has and, and that investors have around Kathy Wood totally even said himself in that Bloomberg piece that the reason Sark exists is the hyper focus that the investment industry has on Kathy Wood as a a sign, you know a, a, a beacon of the investment industry. So I genuinely don't think that you could get anybody else to care about or, or get anybody to care about a short version of any other active managed strategy because 
nobody has the mind share that Kathy Wood and Ark do. So, you know, if we dig into Sark uh, a little bit, it's an interesting, um, you know, kind of a classic in, inverse fund where it offers, uh, you know, inverse exposure to the daily returns using swaps agreements and, uh, you know, it's exposure resets daily, like all inverse products. It's a pretty convenient package to short the ARKK uh, and, and the Kathy Wood strategy. Uh, and a lot of people want to do that lately. Um, it's, you know, it's not always easy to short an ETF directly. So, you know, an ETF package makes that easy. Um, you know, I think folks looking at the, the flows into the fund, I think it's up to, what, $286 million, $290 million right now. Uh, it, it's, it's, there's clearly people who are seeing that value uh, and who want to use it as a convenient package. Um, and I will say this, uh, <laughs> I think it's interesting because, you know, a lot of um, what we've heard from mutual fund managers who are looking at the ETF space have said, you know, have pointed to the transparency of ETFs as you know, it, this is basically what am I trying to say? This is basically a doomsday scenario for them, right? They're they're looking at this. Uh, they're saying, you know, this is exactly what happens when you make your portfolio transparent, and anybody can copy it. Anybody can take your IP and put it into their own ETF and do whatever they want with it. This is pretty much why active managers from mutual fund land have gravitated to semi-transparent active funds. Um, because of things like this, but the, the truth is, I don't. I don't know that this could be replicated outside of the Kathy Wood uh, experience, right? It, it doesn't seem to be bothering Kathy very much. She's out in the media saying, like, yeah, sure, whatever. They can Sark can do whatever they want. We're just going to stick to to what we do best, and I think that's probably the the healthiest and best approach that you can take. So, um, I just I think it's a very interesting story going on. Well, I'm sure you saw last week that uh, Axis filed for a two times ARK Innovation ETF. They also actually filed for a uh, an inverse K-Web ETF, the China uh, China yeah. Internet ETF as well. But I do think that will be interesting moving forward to see if more of these types of products come to market where one ETF issuer is sort of leveraging another uh, issuer's brand or strategies or, or, or marketing that's out there. But I think the point you made is a good one in that there's not a whole lot of Kathy Woods uh, running around out there. And you're going to have to have somebody that has that kind of marketing cachet, that media presence to be able to then launch a strategy, uh, trying to sort of ride the coattails of a manager like that. But it will be interesting to watch if, if you have more active managers using the uh, transparent wrapper. Um, okay, let's move on here. I, I want to get to some other topics. Another uh, noteworthy ETF story over the past week or so was the Spider Gold shares, ticker GLD, taking in a record inflow, $1.6 billion in a single day. I think that was on uh, January 21st. I looked at year-to-date inflows. Those are now around $2.5 billion. And from my perspective, it, it just looks like with the markets in correction and obviously the growth of your stuff that we just talked about getting bludgeoned, investors are looking for portfolio hedges. And surprise, surprise, gold, which some had left for dead, it is outperforming on a relative basis. So it's down uh, less than 2% year-to-date versus a... 5% plus decline in the S&P 500 and about 9% for the, uh, the the NASDAQ. But what, what, what do you think about gold and gold ETFs right now? Do you think maybe they can uh, get some traction last year? It was t- Or this year, it was tough last year for them. 
I think it is a in, so so let me start by saying I think this inflow makes total sense, right? If you take into account that we have had record high inflation prints, people are getting nervous. And gold has historically had this reputation of being a strong hedge against you know, times of rising inflation. Now, the actual track record of gold in these times is a little bit more mixed. And the numbers suggest that gold is more of a second play for inflationary times than a first half play. But you, rather than the reality, I think it's the overall perception of gold as a good inflation hedge that's driving some of those inflows right now. But if you look specifically across the whole uh, suite of gold ETFs that are out there, I do think it's interesting that it's GLD that's seeing the bulk of the inflows and not something like IAU, which is a cheaper competitor to GLD, not even GLDM, which is uh, a cheaper version. It's like the, the World Gold Council's mini version of GLD. And usually when investors are making a buy and hold allocation, history shows that they're going to gravitate towards the cheaper options, right, to reduce the cost of holding over time. But we're seeing the flows stick in the more liquid, extremely liquid trading vehicle. So what it says to me is that investors, traders are getting tactical with this gold trade. They're looking to position for a short-term raise, uh, you know, and, and, and play short-term uh, market characteristics. But are advisors really allocating investors to gold for the long haul? I'm not sure that's what's happening here. It's, it's one of those things we're going to have to have a little bit more data um, and a longer, uh, a longer time frame to be sure one way or the other that's a great point and i don't think there's any question i mean right now this looks like a tactical play given the the flows in a gld i think you're right once we start seeing more significant flows come into the iu's and gldms and sgols and, and so on and so forth then maybe mm-hmm. we, we can make a, a a case that this is a longer term strategic play one thing i do have to mention uh in contrast to gold you look at bitcoin well, you know, Bitcoin hasn't really been that a hedge or store of value, right? It hasn't been digital gold. No. It's down 20% year to date. To me, it's looking much more like a uh, pure risk asset. Uh, you know, it's a short time period. We'll see what happens. And it still is positive over the past you know, year and a half or so when the inflation talk really started ramping up. But I think that's, uh, that, that's interesting. On the topic of Bitcoin, you know, anytime we do one of these uh, ETF grab bags, and I know listeners are a little fatigued on this topic as well, but we did see another spot Bitcoin ETF denied last week. Fidelity's wise origin, Bitcoin trust. And really, it's just been a parade of rejections recently. But I've got to tell you, Laura, I like this uh, tweet from SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce on Friday. So she tweeted, I don't know if you saw this, quote, the string of uh, Bitcoin spot ETP denials has continued into 2022. The rationale underlying them doesn't get any better with time. And, you know, that was a very easy retweet for me. <laughs> but uh, any uh, any feel very vindicated. <laughs> any uh, any quick hot take on Bitcoin ETFs right now? I don't know that anything has materially changed in that uh, in that situation right now. I, there's certainly uh, Hester Pierce's. Uh, expressing a little bit of frustration with the process and, and, you know, that's nothing new. 
Um, we did see the Biden administration making some noise about trying to put some more um, regulatory uh, aspects and framework into place where they're going to try and, um, you know, coordinate efforts across the State Department and the Treasury Department and the Economic Council advisors and so on to um, put into place some, some regulation, uh, cohesive regulation around the, the cryptocurrency space. And I, I just, I don't know. It's going to take time for that to happen, for starters. And then secondly, we don't know what that's going to look like. So it, it's nothing has really changed. <laughs> so I don't know that the, the prospects for a spot Bitcoin ETF have really changed either. I agree. I mean, we keep saying the same thing, which is that Gensler has been pretty clear that there needs to be a regulatory framework in place for crypto exchanges. Now, I do think, to your point, the Biden administration uh, planning on taking this executive action to, to put that framework in place. They said it's a matter of national security. That's a step in the right direction towards towards yeah. making all that happen. Right. But I, I think, again, to your point, it's a matter of how long will this take. Right. The government doesn't typically move at lightning <laughs> speed. Uh, and so <laughs> we, we could be waiting a while. Um, OK, just a couple minutes left. I want to get to one other ETF topic. And I do think this is an important one for anyone investing in sector ETFs. And I'll, I'll try to lay this out quickly. So MSCI and S&P Dow Jones indices. Uh, they get together and determine industry classifications for companies, these uh, GICs classifications, which, by the way, that's not active management, right? They're, they're just determining what indexes hold. <laughs> no, no active management. Uh, obviously, that's sarcasm. But it, it does look like there will be some noteworthy changes next year. Do you want to just quickly walk through some of these and maybe just talk about the process itself? Yeah, this is, this is uh, the kind of nerdy investment story I, I sort of live for. So the GICs is the Global Industry Classification Standards, the set of rules that the S&P and MSCI use to classify every publicly traded stock, uh, you know, to decide what an energy stock is, whether it's an energy stock or a utility stock or consumer staples or whatever. So the GICs gets regularly updated. And right now the committee has proposed a number of changes uh, those changes are not going to go into in effect immediately. They actually go into effect next year. And right now, uh, the GICs community is in a, um, they're, they're soliciting industry feedback on whether these particular changes make sense and, and then they'll move forward. So, uh, our friend, uh, Todd Rosenbluth at CFRA, he wrote a great story kind of summarizing the, um, the changes and we, which we republished on our site and, uh, you know, he found that if the preliminary changes go into effect, it's going to impact about a dozen companies, and which will in turn impact the shake or uh, impact the uh, lineup of something like 30 ETFs. And they're big ETFs, right? They're sector-based ETFs. So some of the changes he pointed out: one was um, Mastercard, Visa, and PayPal. They are all slated to change from in, uh, information technology. To financials, and I think that probably makes some intuitive sense for listeners. Uh, but if they do change over to financials, these three companies would be among the top, like five largest, uh, excuse me, the top ten largest financial companies in the sector. That's going to substantially change the portfolio of something like XLK, right? The Technology Select Sector Spider Fund, which allocates almost nine percent of its portfolio to those three stocks alone. So, and Visa and MasterCard are currently the fourth and fifth largest holdings in that fund. 
And when they move over to XLF, which is the financial select sector spider fund, those companies, Visa and MasterCard, could end up in the top five and change the makeup and, and the characteristics and the risk return profile there. So I think that's an interesting little switch. Another interesting switch is that Next Era Energy, which is a utility, it's, I think the largest utility in the U.S., or it's one of the largest ones. It's a utility that focuses on uh, renewable energy, and that's going to be moving from utilities to the energy sector. So that's going to change the flavor of an energy sector fund or any, uh, you know, any energy-based fund that is using the energy gix. And it kind of, to me, reveals a little bit about how far we've come along this, this energy transition, right? So I, I think that's something, a story that we should probably continue to watch. There will likely be more uh, renewable uh, energy companies that are making their way over time into the energy sector and, uh, you know, especially as we continue to phase out fossil fuels or um, I shouldn't even say out, phase out, but like, you know, build out towards net zero, right? So interesting stories, very nerdy, uh, but they do impact the flavor and uh, the return risk profile of your favorite sector funds. No, I love it. That's great analysis. And the fact is there are hundreds of billions of dollars in sector ETFs. And if you're holding those uh, those products, you need to be aware of these changes. And, you know, I was being yeah. a little sarcastic earlier with the active management comment, but this also, I think, is a good reminder. You have to be careful looking into past sector performance as well, because these changes yeah. do happen. And my takeaway, just high level and looking at the, the initial proposed changes was just this reduction in concentration in the energy and tech sector uh, ETF. So, yeah, something to keep an eye on for sure. But, uh, Laura, I always love doing this uh, grab bag of ETF topics. Fun stuff this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. Valkyrie Funds invites investors to enter the digital asset economy with the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF, available to purchase through NASDAQ ticker BTF. Consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information is in the prospectus at www.valkyrie-funds.com BTF. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Investing involves risk and potential loss of capital. Distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc. My next guest is Dave Plecka, Global Head of Fixed Income at Dimensional Fund Advisors, who currently offers 13 ETFs, nearly $45 billion in assets. They actually recently became the largest active ETF issuer, and they're closing in on becoming a top 10 ETF issuer overall, which is remarkable just given that they didn't launch their first ETF until November 2020. But they've ramped up quickly through mutual fund to ETF conversions and certainly strong investor demand for their ETFs with some $7 billion in inflows over the past year. And their lineup now includes four fixed income ETFs, which is what we'll be discussing. Uh, Dave's now on the line with me from Santa Monica, California. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Nate. Uh, great to be here. 
All right, so look, I'm going to hit you with a loaded question right off the bat, which is that you've been with DFA for nearly 33 years now. How much more stressful has your job become since you started offering uh, fixed income ETFs, or has it gotten easier? Well, uh, I wouldn't say more stressful. It's super interesting. You know, when you go into a new uh, area like we just did uh, uh, like a few months ago into fixed income uh, ETFs, most of the stress, if there was any, was in the year preceding, you know, getting ready for it and getting all the systems in place. But I could tell you when that day came uh, to launch those first fixed income ETFs, we were 100% ready. We were excited. I wouldn't call it stressful. I would just call it uh, just sort of uh, excitement and, uh, and enthusiasm for this new, uh, this new uh, area of the market we're getting into. Before we get to those ETFs, I have to ask you, you know, I mentioned you being at DFA for nearly 33 years, and I've had an opportunity to visit with a number of individuals over at DFA now. I'm noticing a trend, which is that many of them, obviously including yourself, have been there for a long time, right? There's clearly a a great culture in place. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that. I mean, you've been there your entire career. What's that been like? Well, I I think, you know, I often get the question from folks, even internally, you know, what's the key to longevity uh, at Dimensional? And I I would say, really, in my mind, it it comes down to uh, philosophical alignment. I mean, how you view investing, how you view the capital markets, and and if it lines up with Dimensional and their point of view, I I would say there are there's sort of two forks in the road you get to. Uh, The first fork in the road is about your point of view on how how good are markets at as a as a price setting mechanism. How good are those prices that the market is is setting? You know, one one path down that uh, along that uh, fork says, well, you know, markets are not that good at it. You know, there's all kinds of mispricings that I could find, or I, you know, people will say all prices are wrong. When I hear people say, oh, yields are too high or yields are too low, they're basically saying all prices are wrong. You know, in the bond market, the other path, you know, the dimensional path says, and there there are decades of ex, uh, of extensive uh, research and studies to to suggest that markets are really quite good at, at setting prices, taking information uh, and setting prices. Not perfect. Nobody has ever claimed perfection, but really, really uh, good at setting prices. Once you go down that path, then the next fork you're going to get to is, you know, what do you want to do about it? So you think markets are good at setting prices, and then you get to another fork, and then and one side says, look, you know, prices are where they're supposed to be. What I'm going to try to do is just match an index. So I will be, I, I will run index funds, and my objective is to minimize tracking error in the perfect world. You know, day after day, right to the basis point, I'm exactly tracking uh, the return uh, of the index I'm trying to track. The other path down that second fork says, you know, there's been decades now of research about what information you could get from those prices. Again, prices that we think are are properly set by the markets, but information about expected returns and and importantly differences differences in expected returns. So so if I if if I could get information about differences in expected returns, it's going to lead me to forming portfolios that have higher expected returns, let's say, than the market. And if, if, you, go, if you make those two uh, decisions along that path and you end up on that, that path, Dimensional is the perfect place to work. There's no, I, I would say there's nowhere else you'd rather be. We're, we, we work with the leading academics you know, that are coming up with this uh, research and, uh, and then just a huge commitment to research and a huge commitment to implementation. It's just the ideal place to be. Okay, so that is actually the perfect segue to talk about your four fixed income ETFs, which, again, these all launched back in November. 
They're all active, transparent ETFs. And let me just rattle these off. There's the Dimensional Short Duration Fixed Income ETF, ticker DFSD. There's a Core Fixed Income ETF, DFCF, an Inflation Protected Securities ETF, ticker DFIP, and then a National Municipal Bond ETF, DFNM. And I should note that three of these ETFs are either 18 or 19 basis points in cost. The TIPS ETF is only 11 basis points, very cost effective. But Dave, high level, talk about DFA's approach to fixed income and some of the key pillars. Obviously, you just talked about the information that you can get from market prices. I know maybe we can start there, but then get into some of the other key pillars as well. Okay, well... In the end, the, the, we, like you say, we start with the information in market prices about uh, expect returns. Now, broadly, we would say there are two main drivers of re- expect return differences within fixed income. And they're, and they're very straightforward. They're not meant to be controversial. They're not controversial. Uh, one is, is term, you know, the, the, the duration or the maturity of the bond. So obviously, uh, you, you will see differences in returns along, uh, along the, the term spectrum, short-term bonds, intermediate-term bonds. Long-term bonds will 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 have differences in returns, uh, and then the other d- dimension uh, would be credit. You know, the difference between there'd be differences in return between Treasury bonds and high-quality corporates and and lower-quality corporates and even and even high yield. And then there's sort of a a third one, and that is the currency that the security uh, uh, is issued in. So that's kind of a subset in the sense of term. So. You know, there's differences between short-term bonds and long-term bonds returns in U.S. dollar-denominated bonds, but there will be different differences, let's say, in euro-denominated bonds or Australian dollar-denominated bonds. So just to kind of give a high-level overview about what we could say about differences in expect returns and the information in prices, when we look at yield curves, for example, all the history, all the data, and even the theory would suggest that on average – when we see upwardly sloping yield curves where bond yields are going up as you extend out in maturity, on average, that will lead to higher average returns for bonds farther out the curve than, than the shorter bonds. Now, that doesn't mean that in every single period where you have an upwardly sloped curves, you, you, uh, you generate higher actual returns for the long bonds because sometimes bond yields go up. Uh, and, then, and, and those bonds have lower returns than short-term bonds. But it's just as likely that bond yields go down and the returns are even higher than you thought they were going to be. So the real core of the research done decades ago by uh, Professor Eugene Fama at the University of Chicago was asking, does the, does the shape of the curve give me any insight into how yields are going to change? And, and the short answer is that it doesn't. Simply looking at the shape of the curve is not going to tell you which way rates are going to go. So on average, you do collect higher average returns in upper lease slope curves for longer bonds than shorter bonds. But when you look out and see a curve that's very, very flat or even downward, downwardly slope, we call it inverted, there's no evidence, there's no history to suggest that on average you get higher average returns for being in, in longer-term bonds. So as, as straightforward that sounds, that's a very profound statement about expected returns and how they vary through time. So what we say is, look, when we see an upwardly slope curve, we are going to extend to longer durations. You know, every, all of our strategies, including the ETFs, have upper limits. We'll go closer to our upper limit uh, when we see a, an upwardly slope curve, and the steeper it is, the more the closer we'll get. Uh, when we see flat or inverted curves, we'll go to our lower limits. So, so it's it's. It's not static in nature, it's dynamic in nature, but it's, it's using the information in current prices. And then we'll do that in a, in a dozen different uh, yield curves around the world. And then along credit, 
we look at credit spreads. Credit spreads ebb and flow. Sometimes credit spreads are wide. Sometimes our credit spreads are narrow. Uh, and the evidence uh, is very strong to suggest that, on average, when credit spreads are wide, you collect higher realized credit premiums. You know, the, the premium being the difference in returns between a credit bond and a treasury bond. When credit spreads are high, uh, you collect higher credit premiums. When credit spreads are narrow, you collect smaller premiums. Now, that again, it's a, it's a profound statement about how the expected credit premium varies through time. So what we, what we do is when we see wide credit spreads, we'll lean more into credit. Those investment-grade strategies will lean more into those single A's and triple B's. When credit spreads are narrow, we, we don't go to zero. It's nothing you know, too extreme, but we will we'll underweight those single A's uh, and triple B's and, and lean more towards the triple A's and double A's when we see narrow credit spreads. Dave, I thought that was an excellent explanation. Just to crystallize that for listeners, I'd love to take an example, and maybe we can use the core fixed income ETF, ticker DFCF. If I were to compare that to uh, an ETF tracking the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index, what would stand out? Like, what are some of the key differences? I think the the thing I would want to highlight there is the dynamic nature versus the static nature. And, and that's, that, that's not a commentary on, on static nature of, of uh, index fund. That's what they set out to do. That's what they tell their shareholders is what we're going to do. Relative to the index, it's going to be, on a relative basis, perfectly static. Our characteristics of you know, the portfolio are going to match the characteristics uh, of the index with the hope of you know, matching the, re- the returns of the index. So whatever, whatever the duration, you know, durations move around in the index and credit profiles sort of move around as, as bonds are getting upgraded or downgraded, and they're just going to follow right along. Uh, ours is more dynamic because it's saying, I'm willing to look different from the market. I'm willing to look different than the index in pursuit of higher expected returns. Uh, and again, those higher expected returns are generated just from using the information that's in current prices. So what you would see is a more dynamic process where you'd say there are going to be times where our, our duration is going to be a, bit, uh, a little bit longer uh, than, than the benchmark. There are going to be other times when our duration is a little bit shorter. If we look at the weights in, let's say, corporate bonds versus government bonds, there's going to be times where our, our weight in corporate bonds are higher, and there are going to be times where it's lower. And then diving even deeper, we say, well, what about within corporate bonds? You know, there's triple A, double A, single A, triple B. You're going to see dynamic weights in those. There will be times where the, the weights in, in single A's and triple B's are higher and other times are lower, all pursuing, you know, higher expect returns, leaning in when the expect returns are higher and sort of backing off uh, when expected returns are lower. And, it's, and if you look over long periods of time, by, by, by pursuing those expected returns as they present themselves, the strategy will outperform its, its benchmark. The strategy, we have a long, long track record of doing this. So it's not trying to tie the benchmark. It's trying to beat the benchmark, and it's doing so by, by having a dynamic uh, approach uh, using the information at current prices. Dave, when you look at the current market environment, Obviously, we do have more narrow credit spreads, a, a, a flatter yield curve overall. You, you look at inflation at 40-year highs. Uh, but, you know, the Fed no, does now appear to be taking a more hawkish posture. And I do feel like over the past year or so, there's been a lot more discussion around the death of the 60-40 portfolio, right? That bonds are effectively going to be dead weight in a portfolio. Now, clearly, every investor is different. So I'm not asking you to offer any sort of specific advice here. But generally speaking, as you look at the the current environment, how do you think investors should be approaching fixed income right now? Well, 
I, I think the first the first sort of major parameter for any investor is, is their investment horizon. So so let's say you are you know a few years out of school and, and you're starting in, uh, into your 401k uh, and you're just starting to invest. You know the, the last few months, the last year, the next few months, none of that matters, right? Because your horizon is so long. There's going to be, you know, bond yields are going to go up and down a dozen times, you know, over the next over your working career, over the next 35 years or whatever. So it depends depends on your horizon. If your investment horizon is long, then you know none of this is is really that big of a deal. You know, like I said, there will be lots of cycles over the the career. As your investment horizon shortens, you know, as let's say as you're approaching retirement, you know, you you spend the you spend your whole life sort of accumulating assets and now you plan on retiring and and then and then you're going to start consuming those assets turning them into cash and buying your dream vacation and that kind of thing well then then i think it you know the 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 types of portfolios that you form uh, or would want to hold uh, change you, you know so that you know maybe lean more towards uh, uh, bonds than stocks or maybe uh, a little bit shorter on the duration uh that kind of thing but most of it i think you know, I, I think the best advice from investors, and, and this is not specific <laughs> advice, but I would say you, you can't just react to every time there's a little bit of volatility in the market, saying, i got to get out of bonds now because I think this can happen, or i got to go back into bonds because it looks better now. I think those are that's very, very, very difficult to try to do and be successful. I completely agree. I mean, it gets back into taking that long-term approach and also understanding the role of, of bonds in a portfolio being that ballast uh, in, in the importance of that. Um, Dave, just a couple minutes left. When I think about DFA entering the ETF space, one thing that I'm curious about is how you view the decision-making process between mutual funds and, and ETFs. So obviously, DFA offers both. And we, we, we might even frame this around March of 2020 when we saw the significant dislocation in the credit markets and a number of bond ETFs traded at meaningful discounts to their net asset value. Just how do you view that decision-making process from an investor standpoint between selecting a mutual fund or an ETF? Well, first of all, I would say that the primary decision is finding the right strategy, right? Finding the right strategy that's going to help your portfolio meet your investment objectives. That's that's number one. The, the, whether it's a mutual fund or, or an ETF uh, or a separate account, and we're happy to, you know, Dimensional is happy to offer the strategies in all of those uh, formats. Uh, that's that to me seems secondary. Now, the way uh, many of our clients, uh, it, it's it's actually not as complex as you might think. Sometimes it's a very kind of simple, mundane. Uh, uh, parameter that drives this decision. So for many of our advisors, it, it's often the case that their platform provider says, uh, I'm going to charge you a ticket charge, for example, if you use a mutual fund. I don't know, it's $10 a, a trade or $20 a trade. But that same provider says there are no ticket charges if you trade an ETF. Well, in that case, you know, it's pretty straightforward. The advisor would say, I think I could save my client some money if I if I use ETF. So it's not it's it's not that there's a type of strategy that only makes sense in an ETF that wouldn't make sense in a mutual fund or a separate account or or vice versa. It's for dimensional. Our view is it's the strategy that matters, and the the client or the advisor, for example, decides how they want to consume that that strategy, what what vehicle they want to do it, and, and we're happy to offer uh, the type of vehicle that that makes most sense for the the client. In terms of additional strategies that might be offered moving forward, what do you view as the opportunity in the bond ETF space overall? What's your expectation in terms of product innovation and growth and how this, this landscape evolves moving forward? 
Well, I'm you know I'm not one to make a future forecast, but but just looking at just looking at say the, our first couple of months uh, out of the gate in, in fixing ETFs. I mean, two months in and we raised a billion dollars, and that's telling you something. That's telling you that there was pent up demand, you know, for that for that vehicle, that uh, ETF vehicle. That there there are you know our clients that were waiting for that to happen, and uh, and I would love to think that I'd love to extrapolate that the growth rate out for for uh, eternity. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but it does seem pretty clear that, you know, that this uh, it will continue to grow. And, and Dimensional will definitely, we have plans, and we'll definitely be offering more and more uh, uh, fixing them ETFs uh, in the future. But again, I, I, it's not going to be that we had this, uh, some sort of strategy that just never made sense to us in mutual funds. So now that we have ETFs, we could do that. I think it's going to be, it's, it's not that case. It's it, a, a lot of the strategies that we offer in mutual funds, uh, you know, our first four uh, were similar to mutual funds that we offered, not, not identical, but similar. And we have a, a lot of other strategies that we're currently doing in mutual funds that we haven't yet got to uh, in the ETF. So I, I think it will be a lot of that where just the whole array of strategies we offer, you know, if clients prefer them in ETFs, let's, let's give them access to ETFs. And, and that's the way I would expect the, uh, uh, the product development to go on the ETF side. Well, Dave, excellent discussion this week. Really enjoyed hearing your perspective on bond ETFs and in the bond markets overall. Thank you for joining me. Great. Thank, thanks for having me, Nate. That was Dave Plucka, Global Head of Fixed Income at Dimensional Fund Advisors. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com slash sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by both Matt Middleton, CEO of Advisor Circle, and Josh Brown, CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. They're putting together what looks to be the Wealth Management Conference of the Year. It's called Future Proof. It's being billed as the world's first wealth festival. This will be held September 11th through 14th in Huntington Beach, California. I'm definitely going to be there. Hope to see a lot of our listeners there. I know the ETF space will certainly be well represented. This thing's going to be a blast. Matt, Josh, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much Thanks for having us, Nate. All right, so I've got to tell you guys, I was spending some time over the weekend uh, looking into this event, just poking around on the website. This thing's going to be massive. I mean, you're basically blocking off a swath of Huntington Beach, like a half-mile block. There are four hotels, uh, an outdoor space with multiple stages, lounges, this thing's going to be wild. Uh, I, I guess let's start with the backstory here. How did this all come together? And Matt, I'll, I'll start with you. Where did this idea come from? Sure. So I, I think it's really just you know three key areas that you know, made this time right to create uh, you know what we're calling the world's first 
Welp Festival. And that is the, the you know, number one, the obvious one is we've spent the last two years non-traveling, not attending live events. And so looking at the, the live event scene of the past and uh, making the assumption that that would be the future platform or landscape, I think is the wrong one. And so when we looked at it, we said, okay, well, if we are getting back into, you know, traveling for business and attending these live events, what are events that we would actually want to attend, right, from an experience standpoint? And so I think the pandemic played a key role in thinking about, you know, why the time is right to create what uh, we call, you know, the first, the world's first wealth festival. And then the other two points I think that uh, make the timing right here and really the, provide the backstory for why a festival is really focused around this intersection of investing in pop culture, as well as all of these industry trends that we're seeing, right? The great wealth transfer is upon us. We see an uh, aging population of financial advisors. We see a rise of alternative investing. And then you start to see really the, you know, the pop culture twist to it, right? I, I laugh because, you know, Every single day we see in the news, you know, our you know, most storied athletes, uh, most popular you know, actors, uh, they're not talking about their, you know, their last game or their actual profession, right? They're talking about their investments. They're talking about their portfolio. And it's become, you know, the fact that investing has just become cool, right? It's a part of pop culture. And I think it's only going to accelerate this view. And I think our industry needs to be aware of that and plan for that. And hence you know, the name Future Proof. And Josh, before we get to the event itself, just explain the Ritholtz tie-in here. I know you put on Wealthstack a few years ago. I was there. It was a fantastic event. And I think most of our listeners are familiar with Ritholtz Wealth Management, registered investment advisory firm. I believe you're managing over $2 billion now. Just how and why did you get involved with this? I think uh, we had a really great experience working with Matt and his partner, John, um, at, at prior events that they've been involved with. And when Matt came to us with this idea, it just like from the first sentence, it, I just said, this is us. Like, I, I feel like of all the firms in the RIA space, the asset management space, whatever, we are the embodiment of these ideas. Uh, equally comfortable talking about, you know, hip hop, basketball, pop culture, as we are talking about factor investing and, uh, you know, retirement planning. And it's just like, this just seemed to have our names written all over it. So we're going to lean in very hard. We're going to help, uh, we're going to help Matt fill this event with amazing speakers from throughout the industry. And I think from our perspective, because we're a firm that tends to reach a younger audience than most other, uh, firms on Wall Street, um, this is just a natural place for, our content, our presence, um, and and uh, our participation uh, to be. So we, we can't wait. I hope to see everybody out there. It's going to be crazy. I might get a tattoo. <laughs> well, let's talk about the uh, event itself. So people show up to Huntington Beach on September 11th. What can they expect? Set the scene for us. Matt, I'll, I'll start with you. Sure. So um, it's a completely remodeled event scene. So the old model is predicated on, you know, one venue, you travel to a beautiful city, but you really don't actually get out of the hotel. Maybe you go for a steak dinner. So, uh, you know, we're kind of, you know, blowing that model up. And so we're creating a true citywide experience. Think South by Southwest, right? We want to get really 
proximate to the local community. We want to give back to local community, but we also want to have fun. And so with that, you know, the, the platform really is centered around this half-mile-long outdoor space. We'll have uh, three main stages. Two of them will be dueling on each side. Those will be our main stages. Our third stage will be centered around live podcast filming, um, with, you know, the world's kind of uh, most uh, prominent investing podcast out there. And then really where I think the event comes to life and, and is special is around these experiential brand activations. So we've been really working closely with you know, our partners and the industry, asset managers, technology companies, really to think differently about what a quote-unquote trade show floor could look like, right? What their exhibit space is. And it's really centered around creating a, uh, an emotional connection to the audience, right, to the financial advisors, institutional investors that are there. And the culmination of, you know, different content, outdoor space, experiential activation, interactive lounges, I really do think will, uh, you know, be something that no one's ever seen before in a B2B event concept. In terms of the uh, speakers there, are you able to give us a flavor for some of the speakers currently lined up? I know you have a, a unique model in that this is no pay to play, right? You can't have a sponsor come in to pay to be on a, a panel uh, and, and push product and, and offer a sales pitch. This is different, but but who are some of the speakers? Yeah, so, so Nate, we, we've announced three already. Uh, we are keeping that close to the chest. Uh, we will be announcing uh, another 10 to 15 this month, so look out for that. But the, the general makeup, as you pointed to, is that it's a no-pay-to-play model. And we wanted to make sure that we were uh, even uh, you know, leveling the playing field of sorts in terms of who gets off to be on the stage, right? So we want to bring in the most prominent people in our space, right? They're key decision makers, driving change. But also we wanted to bring in you know, some emerging minds, some less well-known people, um, and put them on an equal footing as those, you know, industry icons. That, equipped with kind of out-of-industry perspectives, we feel will push us to, you know, uh, changing what the, the future of our space looks like. And so we're excited about that. Um, but yeah, we're kind of keeping the, the names close to the chest at this moment. Well, if we look, let's say more broadly, and, and Josh, I'll throw this your way, in terms of the topics being covered at Future Proof, what, what do you think are maybe two or three topics that are most important right now? Like topics that you think should be front of mind for every advisor? Uh, smart data and ESG. <laughs> two, two of my uh, absolute can imagine, favorite. <laughs> honestly, can, you, can you imagine getting on a plane and flying somewhere? to listen to four people who were paid to be on stage by the, the company they work for talk about ESG, I would literally rather, I'd rather do almost anything else. I'd stay at the we're bar gonna, all day long. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're going to go the other way. So basically, last year and the year before, about 25 million new investors opened a brokerage account for the first time. We have a radical transformation underway, both in terms of the prospective customers that we're all going to be serving over the next 10 to 20 years, as well as the advisor industry makeup itself. Thousands of, of new certified financial planners coming along. The most diverse and inclusive class of CFPs ever uh, last year, for example. And that trend um, is going to continue. This audience, both professionals and the people that they will end up working with as clients, 
they're they're not interested in going to events um, or 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 listening to the kind of like boilerplate plain vanilla content that I think the advisory industry is known for. Um, I think they want uh, to hear about the cutting edge of fintech. They want to see new user interfaces for how they will work with their brokerage firm, with their advisor, with with their with their asset manager. Uh, I think they're interested in things like blockchain and decentralization and decentralized finance. Um, and and I think that intersection of pop culture should not be uh, thought of as a gimmick. You know, one of the big sea changes in America over the last few years is that uh, hip-hop culture has become the de facto culture of America. So if you look at the top 40, there are no rock bands on there. Um, and one of the interesting things about hip-hop culture, as opposed to rock and roll, hip-hop is about ambition. It's about entrepreneurship, where uh, rock and roll was really more about burn it down um, and, and anarchy. So the reason this is so important, and Matt alluded to this, when you have the top 10 NBA stars, some of the biggest names in the NFL, uh, baseball players, singers, rappers, pop stars, Every day, there's, there, there, there's news, there's announcements about projects they're working on that are related to fintech and to crypto. And it's not to say that these will all be great investments or that everything that, you know, every time uh, Matt Damon appears to, to promote a, a crypto exchange, that that's necessarily a good thing. Put the good and bad discussion aside and just recognize the zeitgeist. As Matt said, investing is cool. Uh, finance has never been more popular. Uh, entrepreneurship is booming right now. Everybody wants to know how to start a business, how to finance a business. So we're really in this sweet spot culturally uh, for this next generation. The things that we know about as a community, advisors, planners, wealth managers, are the things that they're very interested to learn about. So how could we not capitalize on that with this kick-ass inside-out event where we pull people out of the ballroom and put them on Ferris wheels. Like, that's really what we're going to do, and it's going to be unlike anything that's ever taken place in our in our industry. I'm so excited for people to see it. I think that's extremely well said. I mean, the bottom line is the next generation, they're not interested in, as you mentioned, Matt, going to a steak dinner and getting waterboarded with wine and, and having a sales pitch bludgeoned over their head. They want experiences, and, uh, and the culture impact, I think, is important uh, in, in that aspect. Um, Josh, one of the things I've noticed about Ritholtz Wealth Management, I feel like your firm has really been a pioneer in terms of sharing with and collaborating across the industry. And w w what I mean by that is, you know, obviously you want to continue growing Ritholtz. I know you and Barry are highly competitive people. You're looking to grow your business just like anybody else. But you have absolutely no problem sharing what's working for your firm, what's not working, and really trying to help the advisor community overall. And I think you can see that coming through in, in this event. What drives that for you? Like, why do you think that collaboration is so important? So the easiest answer to give you is that I think we're about 20 certified financial planners and or client-facing advisors, and almost all of them started out as fans. We're not doing recruiting uh, in the traditional way. We're basically uh, hiring from among our fan base. Um, so from that perspective, sharing how we're building the firm has been extremely valuable. 
we're not in a rat race with five other firms for talent. There are certain people in this industry, uh, financial advisors, who the only firm they would ever want to work for if they were to leave their current situation is us. And we get those emails all the time. And we don't hire everyone. And we've got to be selective. But we have rock stars who have basically, at different points in their career, come to us and said, hey, guys, I'm reading everything you write. I'm listening to all the podcasts. I'm watching all the videos. And I'm sharing all these insights with my clients. And then I said to myself, why don't I just go work with these guys? And that has happened again and again and again. So there is some strategic benefit to being open about what we're building and how we're building it. But the bigger thing to me is that I don't really view us as being in competition with the other great advisors in our industry. Um, I'm, I'm friendly with so many caring, knowledgeable, dedicated professionals who either have their own firms or work at larger firms or work as consultants to other advisors or whatever. And I get so much more out of collaborating and sharing with them than I ever would competing with them. And I hope they feel the same way about us. So we are proud to sit at the center of, of that community and have outreach and, and have relationships and links. And we wouldn't want to do it any other way. We are, Barry and I are competitive, but not adversarial. Well, I always say if you're a true fiduciary advisor and, and you're really looking out for the best interests of your clients, part of that is understanding you may not have it all figured out. And it's very well, that's it's, true too. Yeah, sure. it's, it's likely there are other advisors out there doing things better than you are. So it's having that open mind and, and realizing that there maybe are some best practices and things that you can learn. Uh, not everybody has it all figured out. Now, I think that's easier said than done for that's some a people. Point. Um, okay, just a couple minutes left. Tell me a little bit about the nightlife at Future Proof. I think you guys both know I'm not one to pass up on the festivities. What, what are a few things planned for the uh, the evenings in Huntington Beach? Sorry, what stays? What happens at Future Proof stays at Future Proof. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what do you have planned probably for not, us? Probably not, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nate. So it's a great question, um, and everything kind of you know, the characteristic of this event is fun, right? And, and engaging, and interactive, and so. What we're really looking to do is to bring that cultural uh, feel to the experience as well. And so our networking events um, are going to be centered around, you know, being outdoors, on the beach. It's going to be uh, music, arts, really connecting the industry um, in different ways, right, in a more relaxed setting, a more organic approach. And I think the, you know, the, the view we have with these networking events is that forced networking is bad. And so what we want to do is we want to bring in the, you know, the, the things that make people excited, right, that makes them them, right? They're, we want to understand their lifestyle more, their hobbies, their interests, and we want to infuse that into these experiences, these networking events. And so for the evening, we have, you know, one uh, Sunday, the kickoff party is essentially uh, wrapped around the boardwalk, and the boardwalk is our outdoor, half-mile outdoor space. So that's really where most of the activity will be taking place. Uh, Josh kind of mentioned earlier, we're going to have a Ferris wheel. We're going to have a whole bunch of uh, fun activities taking place there. And then to close out Future Proof, uh, we're actually planning for a, a pretty big concert. And so that will take place the last evening, uh, National Act to be announced. But I think it's going to really excite everyone. Well, gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm really looking forward to this event. Uh, for listeners, go to futureproof.advisorcircle.com. You can register for the 
Future Proof Conference there. You can also follow them on Twitter, at Future Proof AC. Matt, Josh, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us. That was Matt Middleton, CEO of Advisor Circle, and Josh Brown, CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Direction. If you would like to learn more about Direction ETFs, you can visit Direction.com. Next week, I'll be joined by John Bowman, Executive Vice President of the CAIA Association. We're going to talk alternative ETFs and the overall role of alts in a portfolio. And then Robert Cantwell, founder of Upholdings, will spotlight the Compound Kings ETF, which was the first hedge fund to ETF conversion. Until then, have a great week, everyone.